weekend, we bring to an end a four-part series based on one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Luke chapter 15. Why don't we say a prayer, and then we will get straight to work. Grant, O oh, Heavenly Father, heart, uh, hearts that are softened by your kindness, minds that are opened by your spirit, and wills that are shaped by your purpose. Forgive our speaker, his sins are many. Help us to see Christ, just Christ. Through Christ we pray, amen. Luke chapter 15 ends with these seven verses. The older son was in the field, and as he came closer to the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked what all this meant. The servant said, your brother has come back. And your father has killed the fat calf because your brother came home safely. The older brother was angry, and he would not go into the feast. So his father went out and begged him to come in. But the older son said to his father, I have served you like a slave for many years, and I have always obeyed your commands. But you never gave me even a young goat to have at a feast with my friends. But your other son, who wasted all your money on prostitutes, comes home, and you kill the fat calf for him. The father said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be happy, because your brother was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. Now, a case can be made that the whole chapter has been leading up to this moment, to this scene, and that the most important story in the 15th chapter of Luke is the case of the elder brother. Luke 15 contains three other stories, you'll recall, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son. Yet the teaching of those three stories was prompted not by people who felt lost, but by those who considered themselves as not needing to be saved. They were the religious blue bloods. The tax collectors and sinners all came to listen to Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to complain, look, this man welcomes the sinners and even eats with them. So it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were complaining. And the complaint of these religious leaders prompted the teachings of Jesus. And what was the teachings of Jesus? Well, the whole earth is like a lost and found. And people get lost, but because of God's passion and purpose, people are found. And Luke 15 describes the manner in which, indeed, the passion with which God digs into the lost and found, looking for the souls that belong to him. The first story described a shepherd who had lost a sheep. Now, he had 99 others. Why make a big deal over one lost sheep? But shepherds think more like, well, shepherds than they do businessmen. And so this shepherd left the 99 and went in search of that one single lost animal. And when he found that sheep, he put the animal on his shoulders and he brought him back and he celebrated 
with a party. And then story number two involved a housewife. The housewife had 10 coins, but then one went missing. Again, she had nine others. You'd think that maybe she could do without the one lost one, but she could not. You'd have thought she didn't have any others. The way she swept the house, she pulled out the carpet, she moved the rugs, and she vacuumed until finally she found that coin. And when she found that coin, she ran out into the cul-de-sac, holding it up into the air, inviting all of her neighbors to a party because she had found her coin. And then there's the most famous of the lost and found stories. The story of the lost son, the boy who broke his father's heart by taking his inheritance and taking off. He traded his dignity for a whiskey bottle, his self-respect for a pig pen. And then came the son's sorrow and repentance and his decision to go home. He hoped his dad would just give him a job on the farm, maybe let him sleep in the garage apartment. What he found was a father who had kept his absent son's place set on the table and the porch light on every night. The father was so excited to see the son. You'll never guess what he did. That's right. (laughs) He threw a party. The father said, get our fat calf and let's kill it so we can have a feast and celebrate. My son was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. So they began to celebrate. We party-loving prodigals love what the father did We love the idea of a celebration, but this celebration infuriated the older brother. The older son was angry, angry. Now, why would he be angry? Well, it's not hard to see why. His thinking was, so this is how a guy gets recognition in the party, in the family? Go out and get drunk, waste all the inheritance, come home and ask for forgiveness, and you get a party thrown in your honor. So he sat outside the house, and he pouted. And we have then this case study, this parable, this story of the elder brother. It's not an easy one because he looked so good. He looked so good. I mean, he was all clean. He was all proper. He kept his room straight. He got good grades. He played by the rules and paid all his dues. His resume was impeccable. His credit was squeaky clean. His loyalty, well, undoubted. While his brother was out sowing the wild oats, the elder brother was home sowing the crops. On the outside, he was really everything a person not want in a son. But on the inside, he was sour. He was hollow. He was overcome by jealousy. He was overwhelmed by anger. He was bitten by bitterness. He was blind. He felt he was a victim of inequity. And when his father came out to meet him, the son started at the top with all the things that had gone wrong for him. Listing all the atrocities of his life. I mean, to listen to him, you'd think he'd have never had a good day in his life. He said, I've served you like a slave for many years. I've always obeyed your commands. By the way, come on. Had he really? But you never even gave, but you never gave me even a young goat 
to have at a feast with my friends. Appears that both sons spent time in the pig pen. One in the pen of rebellion, the other in the pen of self-righteousness. The younger son has come home, but the older one has not. He's still in the slop. He's still saying the same thing you said when the kid down the street got the bike and you didn't. That's not fair. What in the world is going on here? Or, better asked, what in the church is going on here? Can we keep in mind that these stories were written for the church? They were written for you. They were written for me. He's speaking to those of us, dare we say this, but he's speaking to those of us who resent the return of the prodigals. We begrudge the arrival of the pig pen smelling kids. We like the family of God to be clean and tidy and organized and predictable. We don't like somebody showing up who's going to blow the curve or, or smell the place up. We don't want prodigals to come because, well, truth of the matter is, we just, know, we just don't think we can trust them to keep the place the way we want it to be kept. Here's the problem. God never told us to screen his invitation list. Our job is to welcome the children he rescues, not to screen out the people we would rather keep out. Now, this truth of Luke chapter 15 was really put to test in the early church. We can move from Luke 15 to Acts 15, both books written by Luke, and in both 15th chapters, he makes similar points. But let me give you the background of Acts chapter 15. Though the church was founded by a Jew and among Jewish people, a revival broke out among non-Jews, among Gentiles, and it was increasing at a rapid rate. The expansion began with Cornelius and his household. Then came growth in Syrian Antioch, in which many people came to Christ. Then there was the first missionary journey. Barnabas and Paul decided to turn their attention to the Gentiles. Thereafter, wherever they went, Jews and Gentiles responded, leading Luke to summarize that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, that's not a big deal to you and me. In fact, that's a wonderful deal to you and me because we're Gentiles, at least most of us. But that was a big deal to the Jews. And it only increased. News of the Gentile converts was troubling news for many people. Look at this. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then, as if insisting on circumcision wasn't enough, we later read that they demanded it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, these concerned men were Pharisees, Christian Pharisees, but Pharisees nonetheless. And recall to whom the stories in Luke 15 were addressed? To Pharisees and teachers of the law. In this case, these 
in Acts 15 are the elder brothers of the New Testament church. They're uncomfortable at the sight of all these Gentiles coming into the worship assembly. They're uncomfortable at the sight of all these prodigals. It might help you to know that Pharisees were famous for keeping religious scruples. According to one writer, they were willing to knock their head into the wall to avoid looking at any woman. They made a habit of asking out loud so other people would hear, what further duty can I perform that I have not already done? They spent their lifetime attaining salvation the old way. They earned it by keeping the right law, belonging to the right nation. And when unkosher Gentiles began showing up at their churches, these big brothers got upset. So they decided to add a few stipulations, add a few regulations. And in their hands, good news grace became bad news requirements. Well, the Apostle Paul, the champion of grace as you can imagine, sharply disagreed with them. Most scholars agree that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in response to this problem, to these Pharisees. He talked about them in the letter he wrote, calling them false brethren secretly brought in. Those are harsh words. And when Paul realized that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, well, he let them have it. He made his position clear. He said, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Could it be stated any more clearly? Paul would not budge. It became apparent, however, that the Pharisees, the Christian Pharisees, would not budge as well. So, a doctrinal discussion had to take place, and a council was called in Jerusalem. Now we're in Acts chapter 15. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. This is a watershed moment in the history of the church. The church is still in its infant stage, but already having to wrestle with the core message of the Christian gospel is the salvation bought by Christ on the cross, sufficient, or do we need to add to it? Was the work of Christ adequate to save us for eternity, or do we need to add our effort, circumcision, or keeping the law of Moses, or something else, to his work? The Pharisees said, oh yes, you have to. You have to. You need to add something. It's not that they didn't trust Jesus's grace. They did a lot. In fact, we can call them the grace a lots. They were grace a lot. They trusted in grace a lot. They saw salvation as a rowboat. You get your paddle, God gets his paddle. We row together. We do our part, he does his part, and we depend on grace a lot. Peter, however, was a member of a different group, not the grace a lots. He was a part of the group called the grace alones. Paul was. Peter was. They believed that grace alone saves us. They trusted only in Christ. Now, Peter, in this Acts 15 encounter, in this council, he was the first person to reply to the Pharisees, and he did not hesitate. He did not hesitate. He reminded the council of the conversion of the Cornelius household, household of Cornelius, as well as the Gentiles, how 
God had made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts, how? By faith. Now, therefore, he said, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. In other words, what saved the Jews would save the Gentiles. Saved not through the work of a devoted saint, not through the collective prayers of the church, not through gifts or tithes or actions, but saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you just read the final words of Peter as recorded in Scripture. I know he spoke so many times. In the days of Christ, when Christ walked on the earth, he was there to witness the, the resurrection and speak to the resurrected Christ. Christ spoke to him. He preached the Pentecost sermon. So many times he spoke. And now the time has come for Paul to take center stage. And it's time for Peter to step into the background. And what a, an appropriate phrase to have as your final sentence. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Yes, Peter stood firmly in that camp called Grace Alone. So did James, the brother of the Lord. He's about to speak up. Now, he was a respected man of prayer. According to legend, his knees were like those of a camel because he spent so many hours in prayer. He was a pillar in the church. And the hopes of the Pharisee sect lifted as he stood to speak. They thought maybe he would stand with them in the camp of Grace a lot in the legalistic camp. Wrong. According to James, God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In other words, it was God's work, not their work. And James agreed with Paul and Peter. There is simply no need to add requirements to the Gentiles. If God accepts them, we accept them. They kept the river of grace pure. I close by urging us to do the same. I close by urging us to do the same. There is ever the temptation to begin to filter out God's guest list. There is ever the temptation to allow Jesus to be the door, but then for us to take the role of screen door. There is ever the temptation for us to breathe the thin air of the moral high ground and look down upon those whom the Lord brings to our fellowship. Friends, if Oak Hills Church behaves like God's church, we're going to see a lot of prodigals. We'll be blessed by the appearance of people who have messy lives, drinking problems, failed marriages, prison records, anger issues, insurmountable financial debt, They'll be too broke to eat, or they may be too wealthy for their own good. They're going to smell a bit like pigs, for they've been where we've all been. They've been in the pig pen. And if we're not careful, that big brother, that big sister will rise up within us. We'll be adding a few more rules, a few more requirements, a requirement here, a law there, all in the name of keeping the place clean. Oh, but those rules and regulations, 
They can turn us from grace alone into grace a lot. And grace a lot doesn't go very far. Back in my Miami days, I was befriended by Edith, one of the most delightful and faithful saints I've ever met. She was in her 80s, but she didn't let her age keep her or prevent her from inviting just about everybody she knew to church. One of her friends became a Christian, and this friend wanted to be baptized. It fell to me to do the honors. And so we scheduled the baptism in the middle of the week, in the middle of an afternoon. Just the three of us would go up into the church baptistry. Edith's friend, like Edith, was up there in years. And she was a bit frail. And the idea of being lowered down into the water and lifted up again, well, it made her anxious. I told her I was up to the task. After all, I was 26 years old and I was healthy. She was 80 and about as big as a toothpick. I told her I wouldn't have any trouble. And so she agreed. Edith stood on the steps next to the baptistry and she watched. I lowered her friend down into the water. And as I lowered her friend down into the water, her friend reached up and grabbed me on my bicep for added security. I didn't think anything about it. I lowered her down and I lifted her up. Consequently, one arm did not get wet. Again, I thought nothing of it, but Edith, <laughs> she could think of nothing except it. I turned and I looked to Edith, expecting her to be happy. <clears throat> Instead, she was insistent. Baptize her again. Baptize her again. Her arm did not go under. I chose not to do so. If when we're in heaven you meet a one-armed woman, blame it on me. I know where Edith's concern comes from because it comes, it appears within me as well. And that is the tendency to depend upon our perfection and performance more than the perfection and the achievement of Jesus Christ. Legalism trusts the ritual more than Jesus. Legalism trusts precision more than Jesus. Legalism is the pursuit of innocence, not the, I'm sorry, legalism is the pursuit, yes, of innocence and perfection, whereas grace is simply the admission of sin and complete dependence upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Dear friend, let me tell you something. Big brothers and big sisters, they don't ever go into the party. They never do. And for them, belonging to God is, well, it's like the big brother in the story. It's just keeping all the rules. It's just being sad that you didn't get a goat sacrificed. It's just looking down your nose at the prodigal son who comes back and keeping a list of things that he did that you've never done. That's not fun. Legalism is not fun. Legalism stirs no joy. You know why? Because there's no end to legalism. There's always another class to attend, another person to help, another mouth to feed, another book to study. If I'm saving myself, when do I know when I've done enough work? Where do I finish? How do I finish? Grace allots never know. They never rest. 
Grace alone, however, sink themselves deep into the finished work of Christ on the cross like it's a, a hammock of mercy. And gone are the exertions of law-keeping. Gone are the disciplines and asceticism of legalism. Gone is the anxiety that having done everything, we might not have done enough. And what stays behind is reason to celebrate. So let's be vigilant. The invitation to God's table has no restrictions. Let's permit nothing but pure grace in God's church. Let's guard against modern-day Phariseeism and Pharisees who think Jesus needs their help or our help. And guard your heart, as the Apostle Paul said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus wouldn't say it is finished if it weren't, but he said it, so it is. When prodigals come stumbling home, your heavenly Father is first to stand and give them a welcome. May we be the first to stand along with him. Besides, no one wants to miss the party, right? Gracious heavenly Father, we bless you now for your word. And we do confess, Father, that that arrogant spirit is still alive and well. We pray that the church... Oak Hills Church, specifically, can be an expression of acceptance, that we can find that balance between love and truth, and that we can keep the door open, and we can celebrate every prodigal who comes home. And we pray that you would bring them home. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen.